Hey, thanks for checking out Passionate Life Church. If you'd love to get to know us more, please visit us at passionatelifechurch.com. We're so glad that you've joined us. Get ready for an awesome message. Hey, I want to welcome everybody that is watching right now on YouTube Live right now. Hey, thank you for staying connected to Passionate Life Church. I am not preaching today. Thank the Lord. I finally got a week off. 41 out of 42 weeks. Come on. And uh, <laughs> it is my honor to introduce our very special guest today. Uh, man, he is a, a grandfather. He's a dad. Uh, man, he served in, in the military. Uh, man, he worked with Promise Keepers. He's an author. But best of all, man, I get to call him friend. Come on, give a great hand this morning to Chuck Stecker. I love you, buddy. Chuck has asked me to uh, pray over him uh, before uh, he speaks. So I'm, I'm going to bless you this morning. Father, I just want to bless my brother this morning as he brings the word. And I just uh, give him the authority that you've given me, God, to speak everything that is in his heart. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Love you. Thank you. Wow. Holy cow. I'm looking at those lights, Pastor, and I wonder how you do it. The last time I saw that many lights, all I could say was, I want a lawyer. <laughs> no kidding. I can't hardly see any of you. Maybe that's okay. I, uh, one, as I get started, this, is, this has been a difficult week for me, and, and as I'm going to step up here, and the light's a little bit less. I like that. Um, I just, you know, I, I did a count, and I think I've spoken all but about four states, and 12 or 15 different foreign countries. I don't say that to impress you, but speaking in my home church and the pressure just to be here, we walked out of church last week and my wife looked at me and she said, you better bring your A game. I thought, boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, there was, there was no pressure anyway. So I want to start, I'm not going to ask her to stand because I like living with her and uh, we've got about 43 years we're working on, but she's here. So if you would like her to stand so you can see who my wife is, just go ahead and give her a hand. All right, go ahead. There you go. Had nothing to do with it, baby. That's their choice, okay? We'll talk some more about that. The other thing that I, I want to say is uh, it's very humbling, really, to, uh, to stand on another man's platform that God has anointed, appointed, and given him. And I just want to say to my pastor how much I, how grateful I am for your trust. I thank the world of this man. Uh, we love this church. This is our home church. We travel, but we come back to our home church. If this is your first time at Passionate Life Church, and if it's first time perhaps watching online, I just want to encourage you that uh, we're here because of a number of reasons. One, every week we get an in-depth message with the Word of God that comes from this man's heart, and we know it. You can go ahead and clap for this man right now, okay? And I will, I will tell you the other things that brought us here to this church, if this is your first time. What you see is what you get. You get to come and belong before you have to believe. And the signs out front that say no perfect people and so forth, they're not just cute signs. That's who we are. And so I want to encourage you that if your heart is leading you, um, I'm encouraging him not to do 41 out of 42 weeks. Uh, but we have an amazing pastor, his wife and family. But our staff here is absolutely off the charts. And let's just, I will tell you that. 
Um, as I share with you this morning, it's a little bit different for me. Back shortly after Jesus was crucified, there was a man, Plutarch, and he's noted for writing the lives of leaders. That's what it's called, lives. And he didn't have a three-point or four-point or tell you what you had to do. What he did was he told their stories of leaders back in the time of the Caesars in such a way that people could then grasp on and perhaps from their stories understand better their own stories and what they wanted to do. My intention here today is really along that same line is to share with you some of my story, not because it's that great, and you'll know that immediately, but to share with you some of my story because my story is divided into two parts. There was the first half of it, my wife calls BC, before Christ, but there's that first half where my story was my story. And then there came a point in my life where I wanted my story, and I realized that it was of no value till my story became part of his story. And so what I want to share with you today is some of my story as an encouragement not to follow me, but I want to share with you part of my story in the prayer that I've had all week and this morning I started at five o'clock was that perhaps you would see your story was meant to be part of his story, and that's why he died on a cross, is to bring your story to his story, and that's what brings value to us on this. I want to just, I know we've celebrated fatherhood. Ken Norton has a great quote, and I, I you know, you, some people, you just listen to what they say, but he says, of all the titles I've been privileged to have, dad has always been the very best. And I know, that we've, I know that we've honored the fathers here, but I, I want to take this just for a second. If you're a dad in here, would you just stand for just a moment for us, please? I know standing sometimes is awkward, but I just want to tell you, thank you. Now stay standing, because I just want to talk to you for a minute. One thing by your presence being here you may not know, but Father's Day is one of the least attended days in church by dads. Mother's Day is one of the highest after Christmas and Easter. And that is because moms say to their husbands, the fathers, you do whatever you want to do. It's your day. And they go play golf in that. Gentlemen, I want to tell you from one dad to another dad what an honor it is and a privilege to be in your presence today. Because today you chose to be here as a dad. And I just want to thank you. Okay? You can have a seat now. Thank you very much. I... Um, I want to start and tell you the story of a dad. His dad was born in 1927. He didn't know who his father or mother was. Uh, the best that we know is that his mother was a farm girl in Kansas, was the story that I was told, and got pregnant, came to St. Joe, Missouri, where she had a child, and that child was shortly there adopted by a couple that did not know the Lord. They were alcoholics, very mean-spirited, and that's what he grew up in. By the age of 14, he was out of the house. He was living above a grocery store where he could go to school, work, and give money to his parents, primarily for them to keep drinking and so forth. He would go, drop out of high school, go in the Navy. He fought in World War II, came back from there, met a young gal that was in high school. They worked together at the drugstore. Not long after they met, she got pregnant, and she was a senior in high school. 
that young lady, we talk about the difference between pro-life and pro-choice. I think everybody's pro-choice. You get to decide if you're pro-life, right? But you have a choice, don't you? And that woman was my mother, and she decided as a senior in high school that she would trust God and deliver the baby and raise that child, and I became the first of five children. My father was an alcoholic from about the time he was 14 or 15, following in the steps of his adopted parents. After five children, I have four younger brothers and sisters. My parents divorced. My father had continued on a track of alcoholism. That would lead him to being married two other times. It would lead him, we say, uh, you know, in ministry, when you're in ministry, we don't like to use the word prison. So my father had a two to three had a three to five year scholarship to play rock hockey for the state of Nebraska. And they, uh, rock hockey is a national sport where they actually, uh, they let you make little rocks out of big rocks. You have this orange jumpsuit, three meals a day. My father was so valuable, they actually gave him a cell or an area, a room of his own, and they put guards around to keep bad people from hurting him. You know what I'm saying? Because he was just really valuable. His life would go on, as I said, he would be married again, he would have two more sons, um, actually three more sons, but divorced again from that, would meet another woman, uh, would appear that his life was on the right track, Um, she would die of cancer, and he went right back to the bottom. Shortly thereafter, um, he would lose all contact with his entire family, all children, myself included. Now I want to bring the other father into the story, and that would be me. I followed much like my father, really did. Alcoholism at an early age. Met a young lady, she got pregnant, we had a child. About four years after that, I abandoned her and the child and her mother, went in the military, living for myself. That was my story. God would bring me to meet a beautiful beautiful young lady, but I was still drinking, alcoholic, and I was still living for myself. As the years went on, she and I have two sons. One will be here for the second service. The other one and his bride are in near Washington, D.C. But what happened in my life is struggling through some things. I, um, I came to a point where salvation wasn't good enough. And I had thought being an airborne ranger, special forces, you know, Green Beret, Black Beret, all of that. I was a man under my own strength, and I could do everything. I didn't really know that scripture, that I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It was, I could do all things through me because I have my own strength. And it led me down a path. And in 1991, in September, in the privacy of my own home, I had been struggling just to really be good enough that my Heavenly Father could love me after all the things that I had done. And my Father spoke to me from heaven, my Heavenly Father, and said, if you will surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, my Son, you will be good enough for everything for me. And there was a struggle there, yes. But not for me, for Him. And in that moment, in the privacy of my own house, by myself, I got down on my knees and I surrendered my life, not just to be saved. We call that fire insurance on the thing you love the most, yourself. Make no mistake about it, guys. That's the path I was on. I had fire insurance on the thing I loved the most, me. 
And then that came the point that I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why we have two words. That's why we say Lord and Savior, not just one of them together, but they're different issues, okay? And I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. From that September forward, God, it was like I was on this catapult, and Billy would tell you it was just it was mind-boggling everything that God began to do and stir and so forth. We launched a youth ministry at our church and a men's ministry there. God would take us to Rome, Italy, and we thought for we would be there for three to four years and then come back for two to three years, then retire. And a week before we left, we were praying at Misty Blue Court in Springfield, Virginia, and God picked me up and put me to my knees in Frank and, Burrow, Frank and Doris Burroughs' house and another couple, and Billy right there with me, and I surrendered my life for vocational ministry full-time. Now, one of the things, I just want to give you a point here, is that we don't, I don't talk in terms of full-time ministry because I believe that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in full-time ministry. And we've got to get this right because the full-time ministry that people often refer to like pastor or myself or Ben or, or, or you know, we can go down Tyler and our team here, Matt and, and Sean and, and the and team, Lismar. Ours is a lot easier than yours. It really is because look who I get to hang with. This is kind of my, where my place is. There are you out there that are working in very hostile places, and sometimes it's in a school or it's in a workplace and that where your faith is not accepted. So, so God led me into vocational ministry knowing full well that I was joining you all that are in full-time ministry. And then shortly thereafter, we went to Rome, Italy, came back in two years, and God led us to the staff of Promise Keepers. Now, here's what happens. There's two fathers here. You can show those slides. I don't think they mean much, but, you know, um, I'm not big on the slides. I'm more on the story that I want to tell you on this. But what happened here was the very first trip that I took, I, uh, I went to Nashville, Tennessee, and I was at the Ryman Auditorium at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was first trip I'd taken with Promise Keepers. And it was one of those things, I was really somebody, you got to imagine, Airborne Ranger, Special Forces, Green Beret, all of this, ridiculously good looking for a guy my age. I mean, can we just tell the truth, shame the devil, move on, right, and so forth. And so, you know, when you're really somebody, you have this image that you've got to maintain. So here I was, the director over seven states for Promise Keepers. And I found myself at the Ryman Auditorium. Sometime we'll have a great time to talk about the story and the history of the Ryman. But Oni Kirk, who became a friend, and I knew no one there. I just met a couple of people. And it was just a time for prayer. That's all it was. And he had two microphones, and the music was extraordinary. We had a boom box with 400 guys in this. And it went from the homeless to president bank, presidents of banks, okay? If you've seen the movie, I can only imagine at the very end, that's the Ryman Auditorium, okay? So bottom line is, in the middle of all of the praying, Oni Kirk stopped and he said, there are men in here who've never known their father's blessing. They don't know who they are as sons of the king. They're still trying to earn and prove themselves worthy of something that God has given freely. Did I tell you I was really somebody and I had to watch my appearance? And he said, if you're one of those men, would you just stand up where you're at? I don't know what else happened at the Ryman Auditorium in those moments. I stood up bawling like a baby. I just literally went into weeping. 
I'm a 47-year-old man. I just began to weep. And my thoughts went back to just needing my father's approval from an earthly perspective and knowing that if I never had his, how could I have a father in heaven's approval? And in my tears coming down and weeping and sobbing, Don Finto, pastor at Belmont Church I had just met, saw me, and I was back a few rows on the aisle. He was down a few rows in front, and by God's grace, Don turned around and he saw me, and he walked back, and this man took me in his arms, and he began to pray over me as a father would pray over a son. And unbeknownst what I'd been, you can turn that slide and go to identity, if you will, please. I want them to see this. It's a story that we know. But in identity, it's when, there you go, Matthew 3, 16, 17. It says, after Jesus was baptized, he came up immediately out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he... John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, lighting on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased and delighted. In September of 1994, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was a son of the King. Now, bear in mind, I'd been following Jesus, I had surrendered, but there was that act that God, just like Jesus, out of obedience, when he went to be baptized, remember John said to him, hey, wait, you know, I should be doing, Jesus said, no, 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 be obedient, this is what I have to do, and coming up out of that is what took place. A month later, I was on the road driving back to Colorado, I was coming through the territory that God had given me and through Promise Keepers, through Tennessee, and I'd been on the East Coast, but Tennessee and Kentucky and Louisiana, or through Mississippi and that. And God put it on my heart that I needed to go find my dad. All I had was a, an old, old address. It had been 12 years. I didn't know if he was still alive. Now, I want to caution you because there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us, Okay. And I've found that sometimes we've got to guard ourselves. The deeper we get into our faith, you know, God says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Never forget where you came from. Never forget where you came from. And I need to confess to you that in that moment there, I think I forgot where I had been because there was a, this anger in me that he's my dad. Lord, if you want, if want us to meet, you need to bring him to me. So I did something crazy. I called my wife to pray with her, and I told her what God had put on my heart. Husbands, I just want to warn you. Uh, as a husband, you're probably married to one of the wisest people in the entire world, most knowledgeable, because I am, okay? Andrew is. I know these things. But sometimes they can just say the silliest doggone things. Let me give you an example of just one. Calling my wife, I knew what she should say. It was, baby, you come on home. And if God wants you to go find your dad, he'll make a way. See, that's what my wife should have said. Yeah. Can't always count on them, guys. You got to have discernment. But where, where's God? Where's your wife? You know what I mean? And instead of what she says, she says, uh, well, we'll pray about it because that's probably what you need to do. Where did that come from? right? So bottom line is I, I went to see my dad, but it, the crazy part was I, there's more to it, but I end up in Wichita, Kansas. I find the apartment. The door is locked in the front. And when you talk about, um, I'll use the word for some of the older people, young ones won't have a clue what I'm talking about, but it looked like Dresden, okay? That bombed out area that just got destroyed by the allied forces and so forth. 
And bottom line is that's where it was had needles and beer cans and bottles and trash in the streets and everything. And I get to the apartment, the door's locked. I can't get in. There's no buzzers or anything, but his name's there. I go around to the other entrance, the same thing. Finally, I'm frustrated. And I know, you know, you think when you're a Christian, isn't everything supposed to be perfect and you're supposed to think perfect in that? It's a day-by-day process for me, and I can wake up in the morning and take two stupid pills and drive on to the Ranger objective just as easy as anything. You understand? Some of you didn't get that, but don't worry about it. That wasn't the message, but you understand? And so what happened was I go, and I leaned up against the car, and I'm looking at the side of the building. A lady came out of the building on her porch. This, if you've ever been a place where you get this look, you don't, you're not from here, are you? You get that look, right? Yeah, I had that. And she reached back when she saw me and she grabbed her door handle. I didn't fit into that group. And I, I know it's crazy. I put my hands up and I walked toward her. And I'm about this distance here from the front row. I said, ma'am, I just need to get in the front row. And she looked out at me and she says, you're one of the old man's boys, aren't you? I'd never been to Wichita in my life. I said, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. She says, you're one of the old man's boys, aren't you? I said, ma'am, please, I just need to go to the front door. There's somebody I'm trying to see. She says, I know. You're one of the old man's boys, and he's told us for years that he had sons, and one day one of his sons would come and see him. But it's been so long, none of us believe him anymore. But you're one of the old man's boys, aren't you? And she took me to the front door, but here's what she did. There were half steps down, half steps up, front door. She flung it open. She ran up to her apartment, the first one. She then closed it, locked it with the chain, and opened it that far. And she said, third door on the right. I go to the third door, and there's my dad's door. He didn't respond when I knocked, and it wasn't Satan, but it was his little sister that lived next door. I knocked on her door. See, some of you got it, some of you didn't. Get the right over your heads. That went to the sound booth. For some of you, it's in the sound booth. Pick it up on the way out, okay? Right over your head, okay? So bottom line is she came out spewing words and stuff, and she says, I'll get him out. And she begins pounding on that door and screaming at him, and the door opens up, and he can't stand up. About a month and a half earlier, he had fallen drunk on his back, and he had ruptured a disc. He had gone to VA, and he'd lived seven days in his apartment on the floor eating soup and cans. He could reach a can opener and those there, and that's all he had for seven days till someone came to find him. And uh, I went in, but bottom line, I'm sitting in a chair, the grease, the rugs, there's beer cans, there's stuff all over the place. And um, I began to tell him about his grandkids. There was cockroaches crawling up behind me in broad daylight. It was just unbelievable. I said, I'll be back tomorrow. I couldn't sleep all night because God kept asking me, How much control do you have over your dad as a father? And I thought it was a silly question like Peter when Jesus said, do you love me? And he goes, come on, let's get through this. Yeah. Do you really love me? You know, and he goes through this. And God just kept asking me, how much control do you have over him as a dad? And my answer was zero. If I had control, he'd have been a lot better man. Trust me. Right? And instead, he um, said, ask me, what kind of control do you have over yourself as a son? And I couldn't answer for a while. And he asked me again. Because God says, obey, honor your father and mother. And I thought maybe Peter was a loud mouth or Paul would have said, unless he's an idiot and been in prison. You know what I mean? I kept looking for the scripture. It wasn't there. And so uh, I woke up the next morning and 
I went back to see my dad before I drove out, and he had had a guy come in, another druggie, but the guy cleaned up, got all the beer cans, trash out, so forth. My dad had cleaned up, his hair was combed and that, and God had put it on my heart, and it was this. I was to kneel before my father and place my hands on his feet and ask my dad to forgive me for not being the son that I was supposed to be. And I told my dad just before I left, I got down on my hands and knees. I said, Dad, you may not understand this, but you need to let me do this. But I have to ask your forgiveness and God's forgiveness for not being the son that I'm supposed to be. And I didn't say it, but to trust God that he could become the father he was supposed to be. That, um, that happened in 1994. In the years that would follow, my dad would have a phone put in. Billy and I and the boys would go see him and spend. He would fly here and see us. But in March of 1997, I was back to see my dad, and I'd been discipling him over the phone. And I, uh, in the midst of that, he said, come on in. And when I did, he said, I've got a few questions. And he had the Promise Keepers Green Bible devotional, and he probably had 30 or 40 stickies in this thing with questions where he could read. His eyes were so bad, he said, but I, I can only read for about 10 or 15 minutes at a time. It was our youngest son that said, Grandpa, that's more than most Christians do. Read your Bible 15 minutes a day. And I'm not throwing that at anybody. I'm just making a statement. It's a good statement. You might want to listen, okay? <laughs> but I'm not throwing anything, you know. 10 to 15 minutes a day is a good start. Bottom line is um, we talked, and I said, Dad, it just hit me. I said, he'd been a member of three different churches. Remember that. I said, Dad, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do you? You've never accepted the gift of Almighty God himself. My dad was like a rattlesnake, and he would back into a corner and coil up, get ready. He said, no, and if that's why you came in, I'm not doing it either. I said, okay. We talked a little bit, and here's what I told my dad. I said, Dad, here's what you need to know. Heaven and hell are real. They exist. I can't tell you a lot as a theologian. What I can tell you is this. Um, hell will be in the be out of the presence of God for an eternity, and heaven will be in the presence of God for an eternity. That's what I know. That's the depth of my theology on that. But then here's what I told my dad. I said, Dad, you need to understand there'll come a day where I'll be the patriarch, and I am now. My job is to make sure every one of our, his kids, grandkids, and on down have a credible offer of the gospel to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior more than anything else. That's my job. And I said, Dad, you need to understand something. When I get to heaven, if you're not there, it won't be the same without you. And in that moment, a man who had been a member of three different churches who had never been asked, do you know Jesus Christ, slid out of a chair, bawling, and onto the floor and onto his knees. If I had drawn a circle where my knees were in 1994 on a carpet at the Wellington Apartments in Wichita, Kansas, if I'd have drawn a circle then, because in 1997, God took the knees of my father and put them in the same circle, and he accepted Jesus Christ for the first time in his life. And eight years later, 
I don't say I lost my dad. You don't lose something, you know where it's at. My dad got promoted to heaven. Now why do I tell you these two stories? I want to take you to Scripture, and I'm going to ask the, in the back, would you just go to the third slide on the Scripture, and I'm going to tell the story. Just go to the third slide on the Matthew, the 20, 11 through 16. I like it better out of my Bible. You know what I'm saying? But if you read it up here, this is the story. It's the story that Jesus tells about the workers in the field. The master sends out and he tells his foreman to go hire some people first. And he says, I will pay them a denarius if they will work in the field. It was a great wage for one day. And so what happens is the man had a vast field. And so they went out, and I'll get to this in a minute, those that are reading it now, stay with me, okay? So at the third hour, it says, they sent him out again to hire more workers. We need more. At the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and at the eleventh hour. At the eleventh hour, he goes out, and there's people standing there. He says, what are you doing? He says, no one's given us a job. He says, you're hired. And he sends them to the field. At the end of the day, they're paying them all. And the ones that came in first, they, they got a denarius. The ones that were hired at the third hour, they got a denarius. And sixth, and ninth, and the eleventh hour, You see, the promise was the same all the way through. And what this says here is, when they had all received it, the ones that had gotten the denarius that had worked all day, they grumbled to the loaner, saying, these men have only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered to them, and he said to one of them, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. It is not lawful for me to do. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is it your eye is envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And why is this important to us? It's very simple. Dads, let me just talk to you for a second. My dad was an 11th hour dad. I had seven amazing years with him afterwards. Every month he donated $10 out of the minimum Social Security that he received. And every time I got there, he'd say, son, sit down and tell me how that ministry is going and what you're doing. And we would pray together. But I had those years. But he was an 11th hour dad, wasn't he? If you had to put me in the picture, I would tell you I was probably a 6th hour dad. We've got two sons early on. They've made mistakes. Come on. But they're at that three-hour mark. We've got dads in here. Some of you guys knocked it out of the park from day one. Some of you, you'd say, I made some mistakes. I wish I could recover from. Here's the message. The promises of God are as true for the 11th-hour dad as it is for the ninth, the sixth, the third, or the first-hour dad. Because God's promises are real every day of our lives. You get that? And his promises are consistent. He is who he says he will be. So here's the deal for us. It doesn't matter what you've done and where you've been. Today can be the first day of the greatest fathering career the heavens have ever seen, except for our Heavenly Father, right? You have that choice that today can be the first day of one of the greatest fathering careers that you could ever imagine. And I share that with you. And the 
The last thing is there's a third dad. And that third dad, when his daughter was born, who's 13 years old, we went back to the apartment and where they were living. And he said, Dad, will you help me? This would be our oldest son. Will you help me go back in the bedroom to make sure that the it's all ready for my wife, Tanya, our daughter-in-law, when she gets tired and needs to go there? And I went back and straightened with him and so forth. And he sat on the edge of the bed. And then he looked at me. And he said, Dad, I did what I was supposed to do, didn't I? I brought my wife and my baby home safe. I don't know about you men. There's a rumor going around that real men don't cry. If you've got that disease, you can meet me in the parking lot, and I'll cure you of that one. <laughs> I'll beat you like a child and have you crying and whining like a baby. You understand? The shortest book in the Bible is Jesus wept. Let's get that. I said, yes, you did. So generation, God is a generational father, isn't he? Let's don't judge by this generation. Let's keep pressing on. I am absolutely convinced that we will not see a move of God in this nation till the men who call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior understand their primary role is to spiritually refather this nation. We didn't have founding politicians. We had founding fathers. What we need in this day is spiritual fathering of this nation, and that's what's going to change it. I'm going to ask my pastor to step up here, and I know for that, but I want to share something with you. Give that man a hand, will you? Come on. All right? But I want to tell you something, and then as we, as we do this, people say, what's the key to fathering and grandfathering? There's a story, Robert Morris is the pastor at Gateway Church, and they're known as a generous church. They give away everything. He's given away houses, cars, and the works. But on one occasion, I listened to a message. He and his wife were having lunch with another man and his wife, and he was used to getting asked questions. But in this moment, they asked her a question, and she said, they said, why do you think he's so generous? Why do you think he does what he does? He was interested in her answer. And when I heard this, I broke because I began to understand myself a little, I think, and why at almost 73, I feel more driven now than I've ever felt in my life to carry the message. But here's what she said about her husband. She said, I don't think he's ever gotten over what Jesus Christ did for him. Guys, we can never get over what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'm going to just ask, I know we'll all stand in a minute, but I'm going to ask all the men to stand, Father or not. Would you stand with me, please, and allow me to pray for you? If you're sitting next to one of these men, you want to put a hand on them and so forth, I got my pastor right here, and I'm going to put my hand here. Father, we thank you and we love you and we praise you on this day as we celebrate fatherhood that started with you. You're the Father. I pray for every man standing here, Father. Would, Father, would you put that spirit in us that says, may we never, ever forget what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because the day we forget that, Father, our families don't stand a chance. So, Father, may we be the men that never forgets what Jesus Christ did for us. And all of God's warriors said, Amen. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it.
Thank you again for joining Passionate Life Church today. If you want more information on events, you can visit us at passionatelifechurch.com. We look forward to seeing you soon.